I'm Susan Siegel, and this is Experiencias. In this podcast, I chat with leading women from around the Americas about their professional and life experiences and get their advice for you, young women and men too, around the world. Today, it's a great pleasure to have someone who is a close friend and like a little sister, Michelle Levy. Michelle is an extraordinary entrepreneur and an even more extraordinary person. She was born in Brazil, went to school there, worked as a banker, then went to Harvard Business School, and finally joined me at Chase Capital Partners as a young associate. She followed me to the America's Society as my chief of staff when I joined in 2003. Then, right after having a baby, she went off and blossomed, building Melissa, a shoe import company from Brazil in the United States, to a successful business, and now starting another venture, Costa Brazil, which sells oils and lotions and other home products. What makes Michelle a great entrepreneur is that she knows how to start a business she knows how to build a business. She knows how to motivate people and get things done. Michelle is also a mother of a 12-year-old, which is quite a challenge, and even more so during COVID. So she is juggling her life as an entrepreneur, being a mom, and building her network and her endeavors everywhere she goes. How did you get from growing up in Brazil um, to the United States? Well, first of all, thank you for that great introduction, Susan. You know, you are a big part of this story. You're a big part of my story and a big part why I am where I am today. And I think at one point, I hope we talk about, about the power of mentorship and support, especially among women in certain industries. So thank you for having me on the show and thank you for everything you do, not just for me, but for so many people that you uh, have really brought up through the times that went out to do amazing things. So I was born in Brazil, very traditional Brazilian family, where a job was a lawyer, an economist, a doctor. So entrepreneurship was never a word I knew or I understood. It came very much later in life, but I was born with a very good taste for math. I liked it. I was very good at it and I liked numbers. So I put in my head that I was gonna work with numbers. I went to university in Brazil to study economics and I was good with the damn numbers. So I said, you know, I wanna get a job with numbers and banks made sense. And I think my mom has a very international background. She was a Fulbright student and a scholarship here in the US. So though Brazil was very isolated at the time, we had a very international sense. She spoke a little English at home. She sang to us in English. So I guess English is America. So I always had this America thing in my head and I wanted to get a job with the bank that eventually could send me to 
America. And at the time in Brazil, there were three banks, Citibank, Bank of Boston, and Chase. And I interviewed with three of them at the height of, I think I was 18, still in university, to see who would give me a job or an internship that could eventually get me those passports to go to America. And Chase was the better qualified for that. So I interviewed for the job and I got the job. And uh, I started working. I went to university at night so I could work the whole day as an analyst. But I kept really pushing them to say, when am I going to America? When am I going to America? When am I going to go to America? And this day was coming, that my graduation was coming. And I really wanted to move to the States. So I bought myself a ticket. We work with the Latin American team in New York from Brazil. We were support for them locally. And I bought myself a ticket. I scheduled myself an interview with the head of Latin America here. And I got a job. So they got me a visa. I moved here and became my career at the time was Chase before it was JP Morgan. And that's how I made it here. So dreams do come true sometimes. Gotta be careful what you wish for. And then you went to Harvard Business School. I did. After two years working in investment banking in New York, I thought I knew what working hard was, but that was a joke. You know, in those times in the 90s, it was like modern slavery to say the least. And uh, that was a progression in life that you're an analyst, you reported to an associate, and you really became an associate when you went to business school. And I knew I wanted to go to business school. I also knew um, that if I was going to invest two years of my life doing that, it really had to be one of the top schools. And again, you don't come out of Brazil, you know, thinking one day you're going to make it to Harvard or Stanford or anything. So it's big dreams, you know. And, I don't know. I, I always say dreaming is free. So why not do it? Right. So I studied damn hard. My English was okay. It wasn't, of course, as good as it is now. But I worked really, really, really hard on those exams and the interviews and the applications. And I had one American friend at the time, my friend Melissa, Melissa Nguyen. And I gave her my essays to correct the English because she said it was a mess. So again, another support that really helped me. And I got in. I, um, my dream, of course, was to go to Harvard. I was extremely excited about and very happy, but I kept waiting for that letter and the letter came. And then and you hired me. And it's funny because I knew I wanted to do private equity at the time. We had a party together. You joined Chase Capital Partners. We did so many amazing things together. Crazy railroads, uh, traveling through parts of Brazil that I think you and I are the only two people that have probably still traveled um, to uh, all kinds of early stage venture capital, pioneer early stage venture capital. Um, and I think looking back on it, it was a true adventure and, and helped make us um, so close, like sisters basically. So talk about your experience um, at Chase Capital Partners? Well, first, I think it was surreal that I got the job because no woman in my class got the job in private equity. And it was a very sought after position and you truly gave me an opportunity. And I was so blessed and so lucky really to have a female boss, which was not something, I think you were one of two or three in the industry that were running funds and making magic happen. So it was, it was really amazing. And it's uh, interesting because in Brazil, 
you know, um, gender segregation is so big, you know, discrimination and everything that I grew up with it, not thinking about it, just assuming it, you know, just accepting for what it was. And you in a way made it okay to be me, you know, which came with problems later. But, you know, the experience was phenomenal. Even talking to people now, you were doing things and allowing us to do things. If you remember, it was five of us, five of us plus you. And we, you know, you were on the cover of every magazine, of every article that talked about internet in Latin America, really pioneering that. It was just so amazing to be on the forefront or something, of something so big and so crazy. And at the same time, was so small. We all like in our early 20s and you're sending us around with lots of responsibility, you know, lots of initiative and you just entrusted and trusted us to do what we're supposed to do. And it was really phenomenal experience that opened my eyes to so many incredible things. And I think most important of it all, it really showed me who I was. You were phenomenal. No, that I was an entrepreneur, but I did not even know what that was. I really thought that was for other people. And I'll stick to my numbers, you know, stick to what I'm good at and keep doing it. So that for me was extreme, more than job and the opportunity and everything that came with it. It was really opening my eyes to who I really am and what I'm good at, you know, because you can't be good at everything. And I am a much better entrepreneur than I was a banker or a private equity investor. And having had that experience today, being on the other side as an entrepreneur, having been a banker and an investor before, it puts me in such a privileged position to truly understand both sides. You know, the, how do I say, the intuition side of entrepreneurs, the vision side, the belief you know, somebody described to me, there are many descriptions of um, entrepreneurship, but my favorite, I don't know the full sentence, but I just remember the beginning. It's the blind belief in something. I've been asked so many times, did you ever think you were going to fail? And I swear on my daughter, never, not once, not one day, not one night, not now, in the middle of COVID, never. It just might take a little more time, but failure is just not something that I think, or I believe, or I know it exists. So the experience was really out of this world for me. And I think what made me so passionate about doing what I do now is that experience, having your mentorship and see how much you, um, how much you went through, you know, over those years, being a woman, you know, being in such position of, how do I say this? It's like, you were an icon. And it's hard to be in that position. You know, it's a very threatening to a lot of people. And it's not- It's very threatening to all of our male colleagues. And it's very threatening for, by a myriad of reasons. And everybody's just waiting for you to fail. As you know, I don't like to give interviews. I don't like to be in the media. I resist a lot of that. And I think that's one of the reasons. The more evident and the more out there you are, the more people want you to fail, which is so crazy. There's this bunch of people that want you to succeed and, um, and will support you through thick and thin, but there's a lot of people that want to see you fail. So I try to avoid that by all measures I can. I, I think that's true. And I think that's more true if you're a woman 100%. than if you're a male. I see that and I still see that today, which is really incredible that um, you know, men are very happy to see women 
no matter what they're doing, um, fail, um, as opposed to supporting them to succeed. Yep, it's something I can't explain, you know, it's, um, makes no sense to me, but I've observed just factual observation, you know, and again, many people want to see us succeed, but they are lesser number than the ones that are expecting us to fail. I mean, one of the incredible things um, when you worked at Chase Capital Partners and then you came to the council with me and we created our first budget and, and Michelle was my first kind of chief of staff and then, you know, ran programs before she got married and became an entrepreneur was, in fact, your strength. You're great at numbers, but your strength was really being able to have this vision of what numbers mean. And your biggest strength is your ability to communicate with people and be a leader. And so at the years between Chase Capital Partners and um, the America Society, and now one of the greatest things for me is to be able to have watched you really develop as this incredible leader. Um, and that's part of also what makes you a great entrepreneur because you kind of bring it all together and you're not afraid. Yep. And I learned that with age two that you don't have to be good at everything. I remember when I was at Harvard, that was this huge discussion. Are leaders born or are leaders created? You know, and there, you know, there are debates on both sides saying they're born and they're created. Uh, I think the circumstances allow you to be a leader. You can be born a leader, but if the circumstances are not there for you to flourish, you're never going to reach your full potential. You know, and I know I have that strength. I'm, I think it's because I'm unafraid, because when I believe in something, I couldn't start any company. I couldn't start a company I don't believe in. You know, I couldn't be selling, I don't know, computers. You just wouldn't come across as genuine. And I think one of the things I learned with time that played a lot against me in my early career is being vulnerable. You know, it's one of the things I've always been vulnerable. You know, I've always been, I'm always in awe of all the things I do and I speak my mind. I'm very transparent with my feelings. I do wear my feelings on my sleeve, as you know. And be, being vulnerable as a leader is one of the things that I think attracted people to me. I'll tell you as it is. You know what I mean? If it's hard, I'll tell you it's hard. If I know, I know. If I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know and I need help. You know, so I think that just makes people, and it's authentic, it's not made up. I don't think you can make up vulnerability, is people want to help you. You know, those that buy into what you're doing, they want to help you, they want to support you, they want to grow with you, they want to see you, you know, succeed. And communication is key. I know I'm good at communicating. But I need to have my voice heard. And I think in our early years, I wasn't strong enough to speak. Therefore, people wouldn't know what I'm capable of. But once I'm giving a forum, it's really hard to have me shut up these days. You know, and I, I don't fight for my arguments stronger than ever. And the ability to tell people why you're doing what you're doing and why it's important what you're doing. And I've never asked anybody to do something that I didn't do or I wouldn't do. That's a huge difference too. When I tell, when we started Melissa, you know, that was just me, you know, Harvard degree or not, you remember these days, I got a bag, I put samples in it and I took every employee entrance in every store to sell the shoes. They'll say, this is Michelle, the rep from Melissa's shoes. And I'll say, good morning, everybody. I brought bagels and coffee. 
you know, no need to know I'm the owner or the CEO or whatever. You just do what you got to do. And I think that is rare these days. And people appreciate that. People value that. And they know you do everything and anything to keep this business afloat and, um, you know, and have it succeed. So that I think makes a big difference. But you need a space to have a voice. Somebody has to believe in you to give you that voice or give you that stage. You know, and you gave it to me. You gave me a lot of confidence watching you, you know, you allowing me to do the things, which was not true for the overall organization. It was you, you know, in our Latin American world. And then at the America Society, you really gave me free reign, you know, to do what I had to do, as you correctly put it. Started with the numbers. That's how I got my space in the world. But it's less and less about the numbers. And there are people that are much better than I am at numbers. And again, because I'm a great leader, I'm also learning with time, part of being vulnerable. I'm not the best manager. You know, great leaders are not necessarily great managers and great managers not necessarily are great leaders. I learned that difference the hard way. The sign of a great leader or a good leader or just a leader is putting really great people around them. You were one of the people that I put around me that were much better than I was in what they did. And so the, the question is, you know, you, you're a great leader because you put great people around you. I mean, you could do it all, but you can't do it all and be really great at it all. So you need to have a numbers person around you. You need to have, in the case of uh, Costa, you need someone to develop the product. Um, and you do what you're best at, which is to build the business. So I think that's, that's critical. Um, and you've done that incredibly well. But you have to learn that with time because you're expected, and again, as a woman, right, you have to do everything. You have to be good at everything. You have to prove yourself in so many ways. But you have to be good at everything. And I think that's the piece of vulnerability when you are your own boss, that it's kind of like, this is what you have for today. I'm good at this. I can do everything. So I can ask you to do everything. You know what I mean? It won't be, oh, she's asking me to do that. But she wouldn't do it, you know? But it's getting people, people are only going to thrive when they're put in the position where their skills really shine. Tell me a little bit. I mean, Alex, your daughter is just amazing and you've got a lot to juggle. Tell the listeners a little bit about how do you juggle all of these pieces? Yeah, you got to be on your toes with that one, as you know. Listen, I am being an entrepreneur and you know me very well. Organization is not one of my strengths at all. I'm very spontaneous. I'm very intuitive and I do stuff. And I learned that in chaos, you know, if that's the outside force, the inside force has to do with organization. So it took me a month. I think we've been in, you know, at home now for five weeks. And it took me three or four weeks to figure out how this was going to work. Because I wanted the kid to get some fresh air, you know, go outside, do things safely, of course, wearing masks and everything. I want her to eat well. And again, my priority is the kid is loved. She eats well and she exercises. Those are the three things. Honestly, if she learns anything, it's a bonus, but I'm not very concerned about this last three months of school. So I had to figure out a way. So we do lunch at one, 12.31, we do lunch. Together? Together, that's a one time together of the day. Uh, At four o'clock, I put on my schedule, on my calendar, Michelle Busy. So everybody knows from four to five, don't call me, don't schedule anything, don't expect to hear from me. It's my time with her. We either go for a bike ride, we took the scooter out the other day, 
She wanted to dye her hair, which I shall send you a picture shortly. She wanted to bleach her hair. So we oh my God. Exactly. Deal with that one. So we went to pharmacies and I said, let's go to Bigelow. So we walked, you know, 25 minutes to go to Bigelow to find hair colors. So every day at four and now she doesn't complain. Oh, I don't want to go. It's like, it's not that you don't want to go. It's on the schedule. You know, it's what we do. That's part of the day. So I'm being very, uh, in the beginning, I think like everybody else, I thought I was just going to learn another language, you know, I was going to get really good at yoga or Pilates or whatever, but those are all like, you know, New Year's resolutions, completely not going to happen. I think if I stay healthy, if I stay sane and I stay semi-active, you know, even if it be one hour a day, I would have accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish in this quarantine. And for her, I'm really letting her be and do what she wants to do. So I'm trying to keep things simple and sane you know I give her more time I think like most parents on the phone or iPads and anything that she had before and that's fine you know what I mean but we try to spend quality time and of course we have dinner together later at the end of the day so there's three moments I stop stop work stop uh, everything and just dedicate to her and again it's two hours a day that I'm dedicating to her from work and I think it's uh, it's working for me. I'm not sure everybody has this kind of flexibility, but it's working for me. Because in the beginning, it was a mess. It's like, Alex, let's go have lunch. Not now. Not hungry. You know, you know the kids. So I don't want to go out. I'm tired or I'm busy. And now it's part of the schedule. And before COVID-19, I know you used to try to take her to school every day and be home for her in the evening on the nights um, that she was with you. Talk a little bit about the day-to-day balance and what you think the most important thing is uh, being mother, a mother of an emerging teen. It's funny. My, uh, I go to a psychologist sometimes, a teenager psychologist. So she gives me some tips as to what to do. Not very often, like twice a year or three times a year, just to discuss overall things. And one thing she told me that stuck with me, it's like at this age, They want you to be a tree. They want you around to know they have support, but they don't want you to say anything. They don't want you to move. They don't want you to do absolutely anything. So I was like, and I remember asking her, so she wants me to be a tree? And she's like, that's exactly what she wants. She wants to know that you're there, but she's gonna complain on everything you said, and she's gonna scream every time you say something. So that's how it turned out to be. She wants me to be a tree. So. My social life, as you know, had to give. I think you have to make choices. You know, I I joke that there are so many shifts in a day. You know, there's the morning shift, there's the day shift, that is work, and there's the night shift, which used to be my social life. But I opted to sacrifice the third shift. So I have dinner with her every single night. And I'm telling you, most nights I run, but I literally get home sweating from work to arrive here just in time for dinner to be duly ignored for the next 45 minutes while that meal's happening, you know, but it's fine. In the beginning, I was very frustrated because I was like, kid, do you know what I had to do to be here at seven? You know, she has no idea, nor she cares. It's with me, not with her, you know? So I stopped trying to get her to acknowledge what sacrifice that was. And I just sit there and there are nights I was like, how was your day? And she's like, fine, how are you doing? Okay. You know, so I'm just a tree. And again, but I want her to know that I'm there. Even if I'm in my room, I come say hi, she comes say hi, I'm just there, you know? I think that's one of the great learnings. I mean, at least for me, and I think Lizzie, my daughter, you're one of the people that said 
to me about Lizzie, and Lizzie has said this to me, she always knew that I was there for her. And I think when you grow up and you're a working mother, maybe the most important thing is your child knowing that you will always be there for her or him and that they are the most important thing in your life and you're willing to to do whatever it takes to be there for them because that's what they'll remember that you're there and they know that you're there because it's the security blanket right 100 percent. and i always tell her like i have your back kid i got your back i got your back and i think that's very important and i'm starting to have those conversations with her and i said listen if you got caught doing something wrong, you know, with, even if you are with your friends, I want to be the first call. I always say, I'll get you out of jail with a smile. And then we talk about it when you get home. But I'm going to get you out of jail, kid. You know what I mean? I got your back. I got this. You know what I mean? And she got in trouble and she called me. You know what I mean? And I said, I'm going to go get you. Stay where you are. On my way, leaving the office right now. And she's like, and then we talk when you get home. I was like, yes. And then we talk when we get home. But, you know, but she got... The, you know, for good and the bad, the stability of life, I'm there every night, you know, for the stability of not getting in further trouble when you were already in trouble. So you took another big risk recently, and you not only had Melissa, but you decided to start another company. And I find that so incredible because you're managing two companies and one child. And so what made you decide to start another company? What made you decide to team up and start Costa? Oh, God, great question. Um, here's the thing, and I think we talked a little bit about it earlier. My strength, my passion really is in building things. You know, once they are built, day-to-day -day management is less exciting to me, put it that way. And there are better people to do that than I do. So I'll give you an example. Melissa, in the last few years, even before Costa existed, I had three or four kicks going on in terms of, you know, how are we going to grow this company? And one of them was our Amazon business. I started our Amazon shop on my computer, you know, because I said, we have to have an Amazon shop. It was all about innovations. Like, how do we make this company better, bigger with technology, with new things that are not being done? So I started our Amazon shop, which I think in its first year did around $5 million. And I got people on my phone and every time we got a sale, I got so excited and it grew to be super big. On Melissa. Yeah, Melissa. So when I was you know, running the day to day of Melissa, these were the things that I was interested in. You know, So I started this Amazon shop. I started Dropship partnering with uh, a colleague from YPO with the technology to allow Dropship. So I was always looking for new avenues of growth, you know, kind of like as, as if they were new businesses inside an existing business. So that's what I get a kick out of. So it, I was less interested in the day-to-day -day management meetings, blah, 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 you know, things that are extremely important. So I really thought it was time to find somebody, which we eventually did to run that day-to-day -day and I'm a more on the innovation front. So my mind is there at this point, you know, creating new things. When I be, and I get approached by Francisco, who you know, telling me about this new uh, business he had started if I wanted to join him. And the more I looked into it, you know, my very rational mind, this is the rational piece of it. You know, beauty is one of the fastest growing categories um, in consumer goods period. Uh, clean beauty, it's something that speaks very 
very much to me. It's very close to my heart. Something I start using more and more in the last years as it became available. And his message of sustainability, all the sourcing is being done in the Amazon in collaboration with Conservation International in Brazil, of course, helping the local communities, bringing something good. And the product was just beautiful. The renderings I saw at the time when Francisco had the plan, it was just so beautiful. It was so unique. And I had never seen anything like this in my life. You know, if you think of the luxury brands, your Dior's and Chanel's and everything of the world, none of them are clean or responsible or sustainable. And when you look at the clean, sustainable brands, none of them were really well known or designed or luxury per se. So it was a beautiful white space. And I said, let's do it. So I joined Francisco Costa. Uh, he's a former creative director of Calvin Klein, and we launched Costa Brazil together in December of 2018. And it's beautiful. Absolutely what we're doing. We've more than 10,000 trees in the Amazon so far. We work with some of the local tribes. We work with the Iyanawas in Acre, which is a very distant part of Brazil. You know, borrowing, with their approval, of course, some of their rituals to be reproduced here and how they manage stress, how they live, you know, how they perform their ceremonies, how they take care of their skin, how they take care of their well-being. And they know best, you know, they only do with nature. They don't have access to anything else but nature. So we are trying to bring that over here to the States and, and globally too. It's one of the things that was really exciting. We start, uh, one of the ingredients we use, it's called cacao. It grows in the Amazon, but we found through Conservation International, this community in uh, Colombia, actually, on the Colombian side of the Amazon, that was uh, a conflict zone before where they were growing weeds and for the drug trade. And with the help of Conservation International, they start growing cacao, which is called, you know, known as the Amazon goat. It's a nut that produces a very, very special cream, sorry, oil. Uh, rich in vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, protein. It's beautiful oil. It's called the Amazon Gold. So they got the local communities to stop growing uh, things for the drug trade and grow cacao. So it's no longer a conflict area. They're making a decent earning and honest earnings from selling off cacao. And we buy the product from them. So we switch suppliers to guarantee demand from them so they can continue to grow. So our growth is reflect you know, directly on them. And we're very happy about that. So it was, you know, a rational decision that it's a very fast growing industry. It's a white space that nobody existed in that space of luxury, clean beauty and lifestyle in general. And it's a very socially responsible project. So at this point in my life, I really thought there was no better project for me to join. Francisco is an entrepreneur, but he's on the creative side. And joining forces, we just could be the perfect um, yin-yang. If you had to give advice to a young woman coming out of business school today, what would your advice be? That's such a tough one. Uh, what advice I would give is don't compromise on who you are, ever. I wish I knew this before. I think I had to compromise many times. And sometimes you have to, you know, but to a certain point, to fit in a certain job, to fit in a certain industry, that's the advice I'll give my daughter. It might make your path a little harder, 
but don't compromise on who you are because who you are is gonna it's what's gonna make you who you will be if that makes any sense and i think i i over compromised on who i was and i still have to you know i'm quirky you know that i have a funny sense of humor and in my new life now i'm being criticized for that because i make jokes and calls or whatever but guess what it's what we have for today if you don't like it move on you know so don't compromise try to find where your passion is you know and i'll give you another advice be prepared i think banker having been a private equity investor those training years are very important. You know, there's a balance in me that says get prepared before you jump head first in what you do. I would never be a successful entrepreneur if I hadn't had the training I had. It's very funny because it's uh, that's why I say compromise to a certain extent who you are, but never compromise it fully. And I think there were periods in my life where I fully compromised who I was. And that was not good. Absolutely not good. But the training of finance, the training of business, the training of knowing what to expect from investors, what to expect from other people, seeing other partnerships, how they work. You know, two, three years of training is a good thing. It's a fantastic thing if you're going to be an entrepreneur. I'm not sure I would have been as successful had I jumped entrepreneurship first before I did everything else. But people work in different, um, you know, in different times. But don't compromise. Just don't. You're beautiful. So that is a great way to end. Don't compromise. Be true to yourself, which is how I've always seen you. So, Michelle, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your life, your experience um, on our podcast today. Welcome and thank you all for joining Expediencius. And we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Michelle and good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Susan Siegel. This podcast was produced by Louisa Leme, Sarah Bonds, and Elizabeth Gonzalez. The music in this podcast was recorded at the America Society in New York City. Check out our concerts online, musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please write a review, share, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts.